Welcome to our podcast, Forgotten Victims, The Forensic Interview. Forensic interviewing traditionally has been associated with child victims. Over the past decade, there's been an evolution in the field of forensic interviewing where it's being applied to vulnerable victims of all ages, forgotten victims, victims with disabilities, mental health disorders, and older adult populations. On today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Sarah Thomas. Thanks so much for joining us today, Sarah. Um, we just start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and your role. Certainly. Thank you guys for having me. So I am Sarah Thomas. I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, I currently live in Indiana, um, but have worked in a few other like states. I am the director of mental health services at an agency called Kids Count Therapy um, in the Indianapolis metropolitan area. Um, So as a director of mental health, I supervise therapy cases um, and our agency also serves children with pediatric Um, neurodevelopmental needs, um, including kids with autism. So we provide those specific services, um, behavioral services, um, and a variety of outpatient services. So mental health um, is the area that I cover. And I also am joined with those behavioral therapists specifically and speech, occupational, and physical therapists. Um, So part of my role is uh, collaborating with people in the community, collaborating with schools, and educating um, providers of other disciplines throughout our agency. All right. Awesome, Sarah. And we're so excited for our conversation with you today. And I know part of the reason why we're talking today is because Kate Homan, who's also here with me today, had the pleasure of working with you uh, previously. So I know that that's one of the ways that Kate talked about working with you is exactly what you talked about, right, Kate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whenever I had a case with, with a kiddo with a developmental disability, I was r- always running to Sarah's office and saying, Sarah, help me prepare for this. What should I do yeah. to best accommodate this kiddo's needs, whether it was autism or an intellectual disability or something else? So she was really, really helpful when um, I was first learning about developmental disabilities on how to effectively do interviews. So from a forensic interviewer perspective, Kate and I certainly can both see how your input could be valuable. And Sarah, what I'm wondering, because a lot of our listeners come from the forensic interviewing world, but also the multidisciplinary team world. So in thinking about what you think MDT members should know, and that might be a really big question, but if you can think about some of the more common maybe tips or tricks that you give to folks like Kate who come to you and say, hey, what should I do? Uh, What are the things that you think our listeners should know from your perspective? Yeah, uh, great question. I wanna go back to a little bit about my role, how it was a little different than how I am now when I first met you, Kate, and uh, worked working in that MDT process at a child advocacy center. So I don't do that now, but my heart very much lies within that advocacy. Um, So what I think I learned, I learned so much about forensic interviewing from you, Kate, um, but being a member of that MDT team, I think I learned about each each person's unique role, whether it be investigative, uh, healthcare related, um, um, medical, mental health, all those different disciplines. So I think part of what our job as being a, a member of an MDT is to learn from each other and not be afraid to ask questions um, and not be afraid to say like, I don't actually know what to do in this case. Like what, what's your impact on this? Uh, what, 
where are you coming from with this? And here's where I'm at, but this is the question I'm struggling with. So the relationships you have with MBT members, I think is such a huge baseline foundation of where you have to start so that we can do this work to help kids and um, get our jobs done and make the world a better place. So I, I guess my message to MDT members from a psychologist perspective, from a developmental lens would be, there's lots of different ways that children try and communicate about what's happened to them and how they wanna tell their story and how they're gonna go on their journey of healing. So one of the most important things being that mental health provider on the MDT team um, was knowing that that linear process didn't always like fit with where the kid was at and what was going on. So sometimes they would stop and come in for my services. Um, and you know, I'm not doing any forensic interviewing, but I am cultivating an ability for them to feel comfortable to start to share their narrative um, in whatever communication format like they feel most comfortable with. And then letting them know I'm here to support them um, and, the, and the parents and the family. So lots of ideas like around that question, Stacy. <laughs> well, I have two takeaways so far, Sarah, and tell me how I'm doing. So the first thing I heard you say that I think is really important for MDT members is just ask some questions. And that's the great thing about the MDT to begin with is that's why the co-location is so important. That's why building and fostering those relationships within and throughout the disciplines is so important. So we can say to each other freely, hey, I think you may have a little more information that could help me, you know, do my job better, or be more effective with this case. So not being afraid to ask questions, I think is a great one. And then also understanding that healing journey the best that we can, because in, you're right, in our investigative child advocacy center model, it's just like you said, okay, this happens and then this happens. And of course, every case is unique and there's different components of how that happens and how it goes down. But at the same time, you know, we can't force a person's healing process to go at the same direction or the same pace as our investigative process. So having some patience around that, some understanding, I think are the, are the two things I hear you saying so eloquently. And I think it's important for us to remember, right? It's not our journey, it's their journey. And as much as it's a long, you know, we're part of their journey in a way, it's important for us to recognize, you know, that for them. So I, I think that, you know, all the stuff you're saying is really, really helpful and important. And one thing I want you to dive a little bit deeper on, if you don't mind, is yeah. thinking about some of those creative solutions to communicating with kids with disabilities. So how, can you think of either a case or somebody you talked to on a case where you gave them a creative solution and maybe it, it worked something just to think outside the box a little? Yeah. <clears throat> so when, when I hear that question, I think of some creative things I would try in therapy, which I think the breadth of that could be very wide range. And then I think of <clears throat> as a forensic interviewer, the maybe narrower range of what creative things you could do in the FI situation. Um, but I think there is overlap um, for there for sure. So sometimes depends on um, the child's you know, background and kind of who they are, how their brain neurosystem works. So with developmental disabilities, you know, that phrase, you know, a person with autism, a person with intellectual disability, like an autistic person, there's so many different types of language and categories and labels that we could talk about what a person like that, uh, different people like need. So some of the creative solutions are to get more concrete and help um, the child have simpler language of how they are 
hearing and understanding the question and then knowing that you may only be able to get like yes or no questions, which kind of, as I understand it, goes against some of the FI goals of like minimizing yes or no questions, more open-ended questions. So it's hard to expect a kid to elaborate like open-endedly about like a narrative or dialogue. Um, one thing that we find really helpful in, in my work as a psychologist with people with autism and those that really are like rigid and want to know exactly what's happening next is use of social stories. And those social stories are usually like pictorial, meaning like clip art or, or drawings, even like pictures of the child themselves with the actual location themselves and with very brief, simple, like um, concrete language that just explains like directly to the child what's going to happen. I was um, privileged to be a part of things we were doing in the Child Advocacy Center in terms of creating some of those kind of like work booklets and, and things of, to knowing what it's gonna be like when I get there. This will be a child-like friendly environment, um, giving them information beforehand and education for uh, the people interacting with these kids, the conversations maybe during MDT, like learning um, experiences, someone doing didactics about okay, like sometimes we know that a child has this certain diagnosis. And if you hear this word autism, it may mean, you know, that they are looking for like very clear, direct communication. And these are some ways to do that. And is it possible, forensic interviewer, like to adapt questions like that for your protocol? I don't know, as a psychologist, like what do you, what can you do there? Um, so another creative technique I think of is using play. Uh, play can be such a helpful thing in the healing therapeutic process. I have some training education in play therapy. I'm not a registered play therapist. There is a certification for that. So when we go to the theories related to how play therapy was developed, Gary Landreth was um, the founding father of play therapy. And one of his famous quotes is that Play is children's language and toys are their words. So in my office right now next to me, I have a dollhouse. I have all these family characters. I have all different types of family furniture. If I suspect or know some pieces of a child going through a certain event, whether it's community violence or a certain other type of maltreatment event, I need to be able to have some type of materials like that for them to have available to be able to go into their story with that. Um, and sometimes it just takes minimal prompting or me, them just being in my room, those items being in my room and they will just naturally begin to tell their story because play is their language and that's how they're starting to process and communicate. So having the child friendly environment one in um, the MDT space co-located, everybody like has the same goal of how to present this environment and the materials to help them communicate with play. All right, so I love all those creative solutions. And I'm wondering if any of our listeners, when you said play, gasped, because I know that for uh, a lot of the forensic interviewing field, and there's certainly been an evolution over the last decade, yeah. but there's that, oh, you know, it's not to have anything in there. It can't have any distractions, yeah. right? Or anything that could be potentially leading or suggestive. So mm -hmm. that that's one of the differences that I think 
we make that distinction between therapy and interviewing. And as a, so I'm a social worker by trade. So for me, switching those hats early on in my forensic interviewing career was really difficult. But what I think we've managed to do in the field somewhat, and it's not true in all jurisdictions, is we have said, okay, so maybe not play, but why can't we have Play-Doh, fidget, something that people can be doing with their hands? Why can't we have markers or colored pencils or, you know, sketch pads available so that kids can express themselves in the way that they feel comfortable in that moment. So there's this really fine line. And I think that we're sort of still teetering on it a little bit because you may find some jurisdictions that say, no, absolutely not. Can't have anything in there. And then others that are saying, hang on a second, let's make an accommodation for how this child communicates, because that may be something that they need to your point, Sarah, right? This is their language and these are their words. So it may be something that we need to make an exception for. So for any of our listeners that gasped when Sarah said that, (laughs) I would just encourage you to think outside the box. Again, creative solutions. We're trying to make sure that everyone has access to this process and maybe talk about it with your MDTs. Take baby steps. We're not saying bring a dollhouse into the interview room, but that yes, but know that that is a way that that kids can can communicate and will communicate and will communicate freely with needing very little or no prompting, right? Because in therapy, that's that's what you said. Just having it available in the room makes it so you know kids will use it to express themselves. And then the other creative stuff you talked about is just so funny because I saw Kate um, smiling over there because that's the stuff that we teach in our training. So being clear and predictable, using that concrete and literal language. So those are things that we definitely talk to. But what one case that came to my mind when you were talking about um, being sort of concrete and literal in your language, I was interviewing a child with autism. And I tell this story in training a lot, uh, interviewing a child with autism. And I found out he liked trains. So trains was his thing, perseverated about trains, knew everything about trains. And so I was like, okay, trains, I can talk about trains to establish some rapport. You know, he could teach me something and be a good opportunity for me to get a little bit of a baseline for how he answers questions. Because there's a difference between asking concrete and little literal questions and simplifying, right? So what I did is I simplified because I said, do you like um, trains that carry people or trains that carry stuff or something else? And he goes, do you mean passenger or freight? Like, why did I take that concept of something he knew? Of course he knew the words passenger and freight. He likes trains, but I tried to simplify, right? My language as opposed to making my, my language and my question more concrete. So I, I think that that's one of those things that's easier said than done. Um, and one of the things that, and, and Kate, I'm sure can speak to this too, in our trainings, people think they're doing they think they're being clear. They think they're being concrete. And then they ask a question. We're like, hey, do you see how that could be like six different things? Um, and you don't even realize that you're asking that type of question. So I love you. I love your examples. And it's just that I think it's the, the practical application of them, right? That that's the creative part of the work that we do, that people need to be thinking about those solutions. So it's all possible, people. We just got to let it happen. Kate? I love your examples as well. And it was one of the things that I loved in working with you, Sarah, because I think it really expanded my mind as to where I could go as a forensic interviewer to creatively meet kiddos needs 
whether they were kiddos with disabilities or kiddos without. But I'm curious from your perspective, what might be some helpful questions for interviewers or multidisciplinary team members to ask before they bring a child to the Child Advocacy Center so that we can be prepared for those creative solutions if needed? Mm -hmm. That is a wonderful question, Kate. And you could probably do huge project about that like preemptive like surveys and assessments that we want to understand from the families like before the kid gets there like um when I think of I have a lot of different thoughts Stacy lots of good points you guys both just brought up got my mind going um so the play objects the fidget objects you spoke about to help the child feel more comfortable um I I don't know like how many districts are actually asking questions like, are there any medical diagnoses, um, developmental considerations like we need to know about before Timmy comes in like um, to talk with us about things that have happened. Um, are there any accommodations that we could offer? Um, there are things about the environment that may be overwhelming for a child with developmental needs like sensory wise, meaning like the lighting, the sounds, um, the orientation, like to the building, sometimes kids, uh, you know, I was just actually talking with one of our occupational therapists, one of their screening questions, um, asked parents, like, does your child have trouble remembering like where the front door of a new building is? And so that's kind of that spatial awareness. I've learned so much from occupational therapists about sensory processing for kids, um, with autism without that need some accommodations in their environment. Um, so it could be something the parent maybe have a tool at home. Like, I wonder if we could ask things like, are there anything from home that would make them feel more comfortable coming in that you'd like to bring in that I can um, check with to see if that would be like, okay. I've learned about so many just unusual, but so helpful tools. There's like this uh, squiggly snake band that goes around like their torso and vibrates like intensely, but it gives them that sensory input and just helps the child stay calmer and focused. Um, with that, to me, it would be horribly distracting, right? But their nervous system loves that. Um, so to have that available during the interview, like unless yeah, you know exactly. and you've asked about it, may not be something that they come with, but it could make them more calm and available in, in that interview process. I think that's a great suggestion if it's something they already use, right? Yeah, something they already use. We don't want to trial new things like no new things, but uh, yeah, those types of like fidget objects. I love the idea of having like basic play materials or like uh, crayons and paper wonderful thing is to start with crayons, crayons, crowns, or depends what region you know what I'm it's talking about. It's depending on how you Crayola say that. Yes. <laughs> you know, I, you're from Indiana when you say crayons. <laughs> I, yep, yep. And you know, I adjusted the way I said it when I went down south and now I'm back up here in the Midwest and I've had to adjust mm-hmm. again. So look, look at that difference in uh, pragmatics and the way language is communicated, right? <laughs> Very regional, for sure. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even... I never thought about the way that I say crayon, but apparently I say it like I just did. So I don't know what that says about me, but I say crayon. <laughs> Who knows? Oh, that's yeah. so funny. But specific interests, you brought up the uh, restrictive, repetitive, like restricted interests sometimes that you see in kids about like trains and they want to talk about that over and over. And so when um, kids have that really intense interest, they want to, that's all they want to talk about. That's all they want to play about. It can be hard to get them to go onto a narrative of on-topic things we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do different um, creative techniques, I think, depending on the kid, like what's helpful. So asking the parent questions like, 
um, is there a certain topic that would be helpful to talk about? Or if I get them started on this topic, will they not be able to get off that topic and perseverate, which just means get stuck on it and talk about it over and over again. And they can't really get their mind off anything else. Um, and maybe, you know, knowing that if a kid gets stuck in that or is having like a behavioral like issue of even like going through that interview process, asking the parent in the moment, um, you know, would it be possible to have a break and, and like schedule this later? Like what time of day does this child do best? Um, and like some kids really do well in the morning. Some kids are getting medication at different times and it extremely affects their regulatory abilities. Um, so it's kind of a fine line though, like how much to ask and how much is like intrusive or this is kind of like a hard process that families are going through. But if we set the intention that we want to ask these questions to make it as a successful experience as possible. Um, it, it starts that relationship off on the right foot with families, um, bringing their kids in. And, and something I found there in what you said uh, is you said, you know, does your child require any accommodations or anything that we should be aware of? And I've asked that kind of question before and parents usually tell me no. And so what I find is if I ask more specific questions, like the ones you followed up with, like, how does, how do they do with new experiences? Mm-hmm. How do they typically respond to a new place? And then what could I do to make that process easier? I think if we ask those types of questions, families, for whatever reason, I think either respond more to it or like accommodations, probably one of our clinical words that like, we think everybody knows what it means. Right. So we say stuff like that, thinking we're asking good questions, but truly it's the, you know, how do they do? And what can I do to make that process easier? That's what accommodation means when you think about it. So, you know, for, for our listeners who are thinking about incorporating some of those questions that you suggested, which I think are so great, when we're learning about the child, we don't always have the opportunity to do that. Sometimes it's that in the moment, but a lot of times interviews are scheduled and we have a little bit of time to get some background about, about the child. Um, so finding out about them, like you said, the individual, but asking some of those questions in a really specific way, how do they do with this? What can I do to make that easier? Um, you know, what time of day is best for them? Are they on any medications? When do they typically take their medication? I also, I also like to ask how long they've been on it. And I'm not a clinical psychologist, but I do know that that makes a difference. Like if they've just started it yesterday versus been on it for two years, that's going to that's gonna be a slightly different outcome. So I, I love that idea of maybe getting some background and individualizing it, which takes a little extra time. But like you said, putting in that extra work, that effort to make sure it's a successful interaction. Because if you don't do the homework and then you get there and you're not successful in the communication, then that's not a good use of your time either. Right. So finding a way to get that balance, I think is, is really important and talking to people um, like you uh, on our teams, which we'd all be lucky to have Sarah on our team. I feel like I want, everyone's going to be like, Hey, I want to hire that lady after they, uh, they hear all of your great ideas. <laughs> Well, hopefully every CAC is able to tap into their mental health, local resources, you know, and develop those relationships. It can be so hard in rural uh, locations. And that's part of kind of where our agency is and, and trying to bridge the gap um, of those, those needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what resources, I know, like you said, in rural communities, it can be more difficult, but what resources do you think MDTs maybe should tap into or try to tap into if they haven't already made that part of their, their team or their, uh, their MO, MOU? Yeah, sure. So I think <clears throat> what I really enjoyed 
when I was like a part of an MDT team was the ability to know, like I could consult with like a pediatrician. I can consult with um, a social worker. I can consult with law enforcement, all these different professionals. And now that I'm not necessarily in just CAC world, um, I realize like, oh my gosh, I've been missing these other like important disciplines. So to me now, it's just rock my world to have access to speech therapists and occupational therapists on the daily um, and learn from them and the overlapping, you know, that all of us um, are doing for the, for the sake of, of kids and families to get them where they need to go to help them communicate, express themselves. So I've learned a lot from speech therapists. Um, and I think I, I wish I would have realized that or, or like um, maybe even could have been helpful to make some referrals like that in the past um, or say, hey, can we get a subject expert on speech and language like for this case? Can we have someone come into MDT and present on this and give us some more resources? Um, can we do a quick Google search and see like, can we make a list in our community of where we can send kids um, and just cold call places and say like, hey, we're just wanting to develop relationships and, um, and know kind of this is what we do. I, we want to understand better what you guys do as occupational therapists and um, yeah, just learning from them, those uh, relationships and communication, like I talked about in the beginning, that foundational piece. And I think that's another great question, maybe that we consider asking parents or non-offending caregivers, hey, does your child work with a speech therapist mm -hmm. or occupational therapist, would it be okay if I talked to that person, right? So again, tapping into not only community resources to get some general info, but what another fantastic resource on a case-by-case -case basis um, as well. Because I know that I've had several cases go from, oh my goodness, I'm not sure where this is going to go to, heck yes, they have a speech therapist that I just talked to and I feel like I could do this. So I think that, that those uh, relationships definitely make a difference and those conversations can help. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I wonder how much those individual providers that may not be like plugged into their local CACs know, like if it's okay to like have that communication and collaboration like with that. I think from a provider perspective, um, professional healthcare person perspective, I, I don't, if I hadn't had my CAC experiences, I wouldn't have really known like, well, how do I interact with this person? What do they need to know? And what do I need to protect my client's information? But that's not, we're not trying to get private, like personal health information. We're trying to make it as successful communication experience as possible. Yes, absolutely. Awesome. Kate, yeah. any final thoughts or questions for Sarah? Well, I think what you bring up is, is a really important one in engaging professionals in the community. And I think utilizing speech therapists and occupational therapists and even mental health therapists in the community who aren't like housed in our own child advocacy centers, but are working with kiddos directly can be an incredible source of information for us as forensic interviewers, not to bias ourselves. Cause I think we get worried about that sometimes being a neutral professional thinking if I gather all this information, I'm going to bias myself about mm. the case or about this child or what have you, whatever people are thinking in their heads. And then, um, then we don't reach out and we don't have those conversations, but I know I've had so many cases where that's been incredibly helpful for learning how that kiddo communicates. There was a little girl with autism who came in a few years ago that I remember that 
when I met with her mental health therapist before the interview, she said, when she becomes anxious, she starts telling stories about princesses Mm -hmm. and queens and fairy tales. And I said, oh, okay, that's really helpful for me to know. And when I got into the interview, I thought, you know, we had great rapport, things were going awesome, but I tried to go into a new stage of the interview. And all of a sudden she says, the queen and the princess get in a hot air balloon and go up into the sky. And so I knew, oh, wait, I need to slow down. I need to slow my role a little bit in that interview. And without having that conversation with the mental health therapist, I wouldn't have known. I would have kept trying to push or redirect or maybe, you know, keep on with my forensic interviewer thing rather than knowing, hey, this is how I need to pace this conversation. So I think it's an incredibly underutilized resource. And it's one that we need to have conversations as our multidisciplinary teams on how we can engage them and what that process looks like, what the releases of information look like, and then do trainings for those folks within the community. You've got me all jazzed up about this. <laughs> and like the, the cross training too, Sarah, like you said, if I hadn't spent that time in CAC world, I wouldn't know how that process goes. Right. So I think it goes both ways, right? Like I think as MDTs, we can learn from, of course, all of the professions we've talked about. But I also think that we need to let them in a little be like, hey, just so you know, this is what our process looks like. And this is how outside of these four walls, you can help the kids on your caseload understanding what they're walking into with us. So that cross training piece, I think is huge too. I got Kate all fired up and then she got me fired up. So (laughs) (laughs) yes, yes, definitely learning from each other. Oh man. Yes. Hey, I love the way you said, um, like a neutral professional versus kind of like the already identified like professional. And it, it makes me think so much of how when I am doing trauma-focused treatment, I am helping this child tell sometimes their narrative story about like a crime they experienced or maltreatment they experienced. And I'm usually using like the non-offending uh, caregiver there like as a support during some like family sessions, joint sessions together. And sometimes that non-offending caregiver is so invested and in, like, well, she didn't like, she wasn't able to tell anybody about what happened, but now in therapy, she's doing all these things and showing it in the play and drawing about this. And so some, it's been so helpful for me to be able to explain to the parent now that I understand that CAC process and like, well, there's this investigative process in this, and then I'm actually separate and I am not a forensic like person. Mm-hmm. And when Sally comes in and tells me her story about, um, you know, she was laying in bed and uncle, dad, whatever person was engaging and started to engage in this type of sexual behavior with her. And then she changes her story in a therapy setting with me saying, and then I kicked him and I pushed him off the bed and my mom came in and we flew out the window and we got away and we were safe forever. Psychologically, relationally, that is very healing for her. Um, And, but I know that's not usually rooted in reality. That is, that is fantasy. And that is like a healing, um, healing story. She is altered and it shows, um, you know, good processing and good safety enhancement and looking at her mom as a uh, protective caregiver. So I have to sometimes explain to the parents too, like, hey, this is not evidence that I'm collecting and, and I've done my job mandated reporting and this is the process that's ongoing with this. And being able to explain that to parents can help them understand who they need to talk to and what needs to happen. And I need to be educated as, that, as a professional in the community. Mm-hmm. So I can tag you guys in. 
Yeah, all of it across the board, educating the entire community. We've just come up for with ideas for probably 300 more trainings, just, just to have a conversation with you, Sarah, um, which, you know, it's why I get out of bed in the morning, as, as one of our previous podcast guests would say. So is there something that you think that MDT members should know about kids with disabilities and their mental health needs as you in your role in the community and former member of an MDT? Is there something that you wish that MDT members would know about kids with disabilities and their mental health needs? There's so many conversations I want to have, you know, um, in that MDT experience. And that's what it really adds up to of how we learn from each other. It's those small conversations over and over again, Mm -hmm. um, which is why those working relationships are so foundational. Um, I think in the history of our country, in the history of psychological mental health services, there's been a lot of dismissal of people who are neurodivergent, meaning not neurotypical, but have a different kind of uh, way of working with their brain. And I think it's important to listen to them uh, and know their idiosyncratic specific individual ways that they communicate and what that means. The child you interviewed with, the princess was connected to anxiety. And unless we knew that child or understood that those individual things could mean something different to that child, unless we take time to reflect on that and "Mm, what are they really saying? um, We're gonna miss the messages that may be underneath like the surface level. So even though we're all taxed on time, even though we all have deadlines and process in the investigative uh, timeline, it is worth it to take time to try and dive deeper and figure out the meaning and communication um, and coming together as a team. And when we do that, uh, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts of each of us. And we're all going beyond, above and beyond, um, just going through the motions of it. So keep relationships within MDT teams, work on those relationships, have fun together, dive deeper and uh, learn more together and feel that passion of why we all do what we do so that we can hear the message and take action. I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sarah. We are so happy to have you um, on our podcast. And once a podcast guest, always a podcast guest. We hope you can come back at some point soon. I know a few other people around here. (laughs) We would love to have you. All right. Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you, Stacey. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the work being done by Modell Consulting Group, visit our website, modellconsultinggroup.com, or follow us on social media.